Amen. I have to say it is a privilege to serve with, with Doug and Eric and the other guys on the advisory team. Um, let me just say this. They are the real deal. Like what, they, what you see up here when they're preaching is like they're the same people. I've got to move this or I'm going to get. They're the same people, you know, when they're with their families, uh, when they're out in the community. There's no fakeness with these guys. And so it's a privilege to serve with true, genuine men who, who love Jesus. And uh, I've been excited about this, uh, about this opportunity coming up. It's been on the books for a little bit of, of time. First John is a, a, one of my favorite uh, books in the Bible, and I've done a lot of work in First John, and so I've been excited to have this opportunity. But, uh, you know, we're going into vacation season, right? How many of you have family vacations planned for June, July, August, whatever? Um, we're getting ready to roll into that time. It may not be planned, but you'll probably plan on doing something eventually. Um, my wife and I, our family, we in the past have lived either in the same city as her family or we've lived in the same city as my family. So our family vacations, they uh, were basically either going to her family or going to my family, staying with them, doing whatever they wanted to do, having family get-togethers, things like that. A number of years ago, I think it was in 2009 or 2010, we decided, we were living here in, in Iowa, and we decided instead of going to see family, I think we're just going to plan a vacation of our own to where we just take our own time and we go do whatever we want to do. And so we had some friends that lived in Florida, in Naples, and we decided we were going to go to Florida. I had banked up some vacation time, about three weeks. We had a little jingle in our pocket, so we were able to, you know, afford to stay at some hotels and spend a little bit longer of a time. So we had some, uh, some things on our bucket list that we wanted to do in Florida. The first thing we wanted to do is go, go to the Keys. We kind of wanted to go hang out at the Keys and, and learn, uh, you know, check out that and, and eat some good food. We ate at a nice restaurant right along the beach, and it was just a a beautiful night. Uh, we wanted to roll up the coast, the East Coast, and go to Kennedy Space Center. And so we went to Kennedy Space Center and, and saw that and spent about two or three days there. Had some friends that lived in Naples, so we were hanging out by their pool and just loving life. Well, another thing that was on our bucket list was snorkeling. How many of you have ever been snorkeling? How many of you want to go snorkeling? I don't ever want to do it again. <laughs> You'll hear in a minute, it's the worst experience of my life. We, I can't remember where we were, but we paid the $25 for each of us, the five of us, so it wasn't a cheap gig uh, to go snorkeling, and got onto this boat, and I remember the boat, it was a pretty good-sized boat, and the first thing you kind of hear is uh, the, the guy named, his, he's a big guy, deep voice, my name is Captain Ron, and I'm in charge of this boat. You're going to do what I say, or you're not going to get on the boat. So Captain Ron made himself uh, the authority very quickly upon getting on his boat. And uh, I remember it was the, the, the reef, I believe, was maybe 10 or 15 miles out into the ocean. And uh, the, the trip took a little bit of time. And during that time, Captain Ron explained the rules. He kind of told us what the lay of the land was. And he was telling us about this reef and he said that, hey, I just need to let you know, if you touch the reef, you're in big trouble. Like, you don't touch the reef. Evidently, 
uh, if you touch the reef, that part of the reef dies and it can never restore itself. So they don't want people picking things off of the reef or they want people touching the reef or whatever. And so um, he let us know you don't touch the reef. If you do, it's going to cost you big money. And so much so that if you can't afford to pay the big money, we're taking your firstborn. She's right there. We're going to grab her, you know. So now I may have taken him up on that, but no, then I wasn't even thinking about it. But anyway, so he told us that. And the second thing he said is that if you get into trouble when you're out in the water, the universal sign for help is this. I thought that's an important thing to remember. So we get out to the reef, you know, we, we... you know, get all of our gear on, get our snorkel gear on. He gives us these little vests. And this, I wasn't like really sold on this vest. It had a little tube that came up and you blow in the tube, right? And you inflate it to the desire that you want it. And it's supposed to hold you up. I didn't have a lot of faith in it. So upon entering the water, he said, if you don't have a lot of faith in that, here's a noodle. You know, so I, I, I'm like, yeah, I want a noodle. I'm a big dude, right? I want a noodle. So you take the noodle, you put it around your chest and underneath your arms, and you kind of dive in, and it helps you float. Well, I'm kind of excited. I hadn't done it yet, so I didn't know how much I hated it. Uh, So I just put my head in the water, and I start looking, and you see all these different colors of fish. And, you know, I start paddling and kind of working my way out. You know, I totally forgot that I had a wife and three kids. You know, the kids were uh, old enough to pretty much take care of themselves, but uh, still, I just kind of left them, and um, I'm rolling out, and I hear my wife go, Charles, Charles, wait. So I wait a little bit, and still looking around, kind of paddling a little bit more, and I look back to see where she is, and the boat felt like it was three or four football fields away from me. I felt like I was miles away from the boat. I wasn't, but it just felt like that. And in my mind, I thought, I'm never going to be able to get back there. And then I'm getting all panicky because the water makes it appear like the reef is really close to me. And so I'm, if I, I feel like if I'm sitting up straight, my feet are going to touch the reef, and I'm going to have to pay thousands of dollars. And so I, I start to panic. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I'm never going to be able to get back to the boat. And so my daughter was caught up with us by that time, and she was feeling a little panicky as well. Jennifer was trying to talk to me, telling me to settle down. I'm talking to her, telling her I can't. A big wave crashes onto my face, and I take on some water, so now I'm gagging. I feel like I'm drowning, so what do I do? Yep. (laughs) Captain Ron, I need some help. (laughs) You know, so I, I panic a little bit, and Captain Ron, you know, gets into the water, brings me a life preserver. He says, just hold on to this. A guy back at the boat had the rope and started to, to pull me in. My daughter and I, she was also a little panicky. We both got on the boat. And you know what Dr. Or Captain Ron said? He said, Chuck, you're the first guy I've ever had to rescue that had a life jacket and a noodle. So I don't know if that's still true for him. Nonetheless, I love Captain Ron. Captain Ron was my hero that day. Because he literally saved my life. I feel like he rescued me. Um, Before we get into the heart of the message this morning, that story relates. But before we get into the heart of the message this morning, I need to, I want to teach you some theology. And it comes out of verse number one. Verse number one says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the, the Christ has been born of God. 
So my goal for the next few minutes is to help us gain a better understanding of what Jesus is the Christ means in that part of the verse. I mean, I, I can't pass this up. This may be the first time that some of you have heard this idea that Jesus is the Christ. A lot of us think that Christ was Jesus' last name, right? Or it's just a, a day for you know, Christmas or whatever. But the Christ, the fact that Jesus is the Christ is a very important understanding, and we're going to look at it this morning. Who is Jesus? Well, an old 19th century theologian said this. He said that when it comes to Jesus, many people see him as simply a reflection of themselves seen at the bottom of the well. What did he mean? Well, imagine yourself trapped at the bottom of the well and you can't get out. The idea with his quote is that Jesus did. Jesus got out from the bottom of the well, and we're going to work our way up. We're going to follow Jesus as an example. What did Jesus do to get out of the bottom of the well? We're going to do that too. Um, I couldn't ever be perfect, but Jesus was, so I'm going to follow his example. And so it's this idea, people have an idea of who Jesus is. They follow him as their great example. He is simply an example. And while those things are true, Jesus is so much more than that. All of the things he did and the example, example that he set would be meaningless if it weren't for the idea that he was and is the Christ. So a little theology 101. There is a fancy, last week we learned about propitiation with Eric, right? It's a pretty fancy word. We're going to learn about a word today called hypostatic union. What in the world is the hypostatic union? Well, the Greek word for hypostatic is hypostasis. And this word only appears four times in the New Testament. All right? And I want to look at it. The slide should be up there. Uh, it's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 is where the word comes out. I want to read verses 1 through 3 so that we can get a good context of what's going on. It says this, Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, this is our word. He is the radiance, talking about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is referred to in this passage of scripture as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That phrase is the word hypostasis. Okay? The author of Hebrews uses this word in reference to the oneness of God. Both the Father and the Son are of the same nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus has two complete natures. He has one that's fully human and he has one that is fully divine. And what Hebrews 1 teaches is that these two natures are united in one person in what we call the God-man. Jesus is 
the God-man. He is not two persons. He is one person. The hypostatic union is the joining of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus. Now, why does that even matter? Why is that a big deal? Well, we have a problem with this thing called sin, right? Mankind is sinful by nature. We don't have to look very far to see that. There's been tragedies in our communities year after year. There's been unsuspected things that's, that's happened that breaks our heart. We don't have to look very far to understand that sin is not only among us, but it's even in us. No man is qualified to die for their sin. It took the God-man. Jesus, who is fully God, yet fully man, is the only one qualified for that job. You see, we needed someone to rescue us, right? We needed someone to rescue us. Jesus is the only person that is qualified to rescue me. As my body lay lifeless in this sea of death, Jesus willingly jumped in to that sea, overcame death, and saved me from my sin. He breathed life into my soul. Jesus rescued me from my sin. Jesus is more than a good example. He is our rescuer. He's like Captain Ron. We all need rescued. We all need to be saved from sin, and we all need to see that Jesus is the Christ. And so what does this have to do with 1 John 5, 1? When someone believes that they need someone to rescue them and, that, and that, that Jesus is the only one capable of rescuing them, they have been reborn. See, the verse says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. They've been reborn. They've experienced this new birth um, that we have read about before in John chapter 3 where this man named Nicodemus says, what, gotta, what do I got to do to, to go to heaven? And Jesus says, you got to be born again. And so it's this idea of the, of the new birth. Their eyes have been opened up. A sort of spiritual light bulb has come on. Does that make sense? This matters. It matters, people. This matters because we all need rescued. We all need a Savior. And chances are you feel this. I mean, chances are you really feel this. You probably felt it at some point in your life. Maybe even this week when you looked at that image on the computer. Or that time you bought that cool toy that you always wanted. Or you got that job that maybe you thought would satisfy you. Or you binged on that food that you thought might make you feel better. The fact is that if they haven't already, those things will eventually leave you feeling empty and without hope. And you'll look for something else to rescue you. You want to hear something awesome? This is awesome. When Jesus rescues you, he not only rescues you, but he also satisfies you. This is the essence of the gospel. Did you catch that? When Jesus rescues you, he also satisfies you. This is the essence of the gospel. So 
How do we know that Jesus is not only our rescuer, but that he is also satisfying us? That's a great question, and guess what? The remainder of our verses kind of help us out with that. So we're going to look at two things this morning, just two points, and we'll be, we'll be done. Um, we know that Jesus is satisfying us when we are learning to love one another. And then number two, we know that Jesus is satisfying us when we are have, having victory over sin. So let's tackle number one first. Let's read verses two and three. It says in verse number two, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. John refers to the commandments. Now what commandments is he talking about? Is he talking about the 10 commandments? It's unlikely. I don't believe he's talking about the 10 commandments there. John was there when Jesus was fulfilling his earthly ministry, right? He was one of his disciples. And he was there when the uh, Pharisees asked the question, "Um, Jesus, can you kind of tell us what the most important commandment is? Well, they wanted to know because it was another, you know, box on their list that they could check off to say, I've done my stuff. That's all they wanted to know for. But Jesus kind of tripped them up a little bit. And he said, the commandments can be boiled down to this. Love God and love one another. Huh. They didn't get what they wanted. But John heard that. That made an, uh, that made a, an impact on John. And John wrote in his gospel about the new commandment. When he heard Jesus say that, he said, love one another as I have loved you. Eric kicked this off uh, a few weeks ago with, uh, you know, with this Love Can series. He talked about the new commandment, which is not a new commandment. It's really an old commandment in chapter 2. You guys remember that? So John's still picking up on that theme, and he's running with it. And in the entire book of 1 John, you see this idea of loving God and loving one another. Um, it's all over this book. And then chapter 4, again with Eric, last week it ends with this idea and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brothers. So I think it's pretty clear that the commandments that John is talking about here is this idea of loving God and loving one another. If you get the two mixed up, you're, you're gonna, it's going to be confusing for you. You've got to love God and love one another. Loving God is the fuel by which we love one another. The driving force behind the command to love one another is a love for the Father. We can't miss this. Love for the Father comes as we understand deeper and deeper that he has rescued us, right? What we've been rescued from. As as we love the Father, we seek to please him. By doing what he has asked us to do, which is to love one another. Do you see how this works? you see how it fits in the text? He says, his commandments, I'm commanding you uh, to love one another. When you do this, it's not burdensome. So, So love one another. Loving one another becomes easier and less burdensome when we understand that it pleases the Father. When you take the gospel out of the command to love one another, when you take that idea that Jesus has rescued us out of the command to love one another, that command simply becomes a task to complete. It becomes something hard to do. It becomes another thing on our list. This task can either become boring and meaningless if you're good, 
Like some of us have a, a big capacity, a large capacity to love, right? It just kind of comes natural. Others of us aren't people pleasers or people individuals. And so to, to love and to reach out to somebody might be hard for us. So it might be either a task that becomes meaningless and easy, just another box to check off, or it becomes impossible and hard. It depends on how we're driven. Either way, it becomes a burden. It becomes another thing in our list that we have to do or something that we dread doing. The gospel says this. It says, I have been loved greatly. Therefore, I am going, I'm going to love you greatly for all that you are. The gospel says this. I have been loved greatly for all that I am. Therefore, I will love you greatly for all that you are. It turns it on its head. It becomes less like a task or a duty and more like an outpouring of what God has done for us. You see, faith in Christ is not just mentally assenting to what God has done for us, but it really is embracing all that he has for us. You know where we do this? You know where we learn to love one another? City group. It's where we learn to love one another. This is what we do here is part of what we do at City Light, but we have these smaller communities, smaller groups called city groups, and that's where we learn to love one another. That's where we learn to uh, put up with each other sometimes. Um, it's one of those, it's a time where we, we get together and we talk about scripture possibly. We talk about what's going on in each other's life. We talk about the troubles of the week. It just depends on what goes on that night. Sometimes we tell each other, tell our story, how we came to faith. But it's, it's where we do this thing called life together. It's where we learn to love one another. And I'm going to share with you a little bit more in a little while how my city group has really uh, affected me. Um, how many city groups do we have? We have about 10 or 12, right? So there's lots of opportunity to, to get and jump in. We don't want to, here at City Light, we don't want to be uh, just a crowd of people. We really want to be a family. And in order to kind of facilitate that, we need, to, we need to get in city groups. So let me encourage you this week, go to uh, citylightcb.org, and there are a list of city, light, or city groups there. Go there and just check one out. Email the contacts. Uh, talk to Doug or Eric. Talk to me afterwards, whatever, and we'll, we will uh, point you in the, in the right direction. So that's my plug for city groups. That's where we learn to really love one another. So um, that was number one. Number two, Jesus is satisfying us when we are having victory over sin. Let's look in verses 4 and 5. It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So I've got to explain the gospel connection because the temptation here when we start talking about overcoming like sin, overcoming the world, overcoming the, the things that um, like set us aside or kind of, kind of trip us up, the temptation is to say, oh, I can do better. I can, I can do this. I can make things work. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can uh, be disciplined enough to accomplish this task or to accomplish this goal, whatever it is. 
I want you to understand that if you look in verse number four, it says, for everyone who has been born of God. What's that take us back to? It takes us back to the fact that Jesus rescued us, right? It takes us back to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And then if you look in verse number five, and the end of verse number four, it says, our faith. Verse number five says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So it's that idea, again, that Jesus has rescued us, that he is our rescuer. The one, I want us to understand that that is kind of the, the foundation. That's the basis. What's another term that we got to define in this, uh, in this passage of Scripture? It's the world. What is the world talking about? Is it people? No. What is the world? So if you look back in 1 John chapter 2, and verses 15 through 17, it reads this way. It says, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. So the desire, the world is the desire to have something that you don't possess, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and it's taking pride in the things that you do possess, pride in possessions. So John is saying in chapter 2 that loving the world is looking for satisfaction in things that we don't have and finding satisfaction in the things that we do have. So this idea of the world is looking for satisfaction in things that we don't have, that desire, desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, and finding satisfaction in the things that we do have, our pride in possessions. In John chapter 5, John is saying that when Jesus rescues us, he becomes the one that satisfies, and we are no longer victims of our earthly desires. Does that make sense? In John chapter 5, when he's talking about overcoming the world, he is saying that Jesus is the one that satisfies us, and we are no longer victims to our earthly desires, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. Let me see if I can explain this uh, through recent stories of mine. Now, how many of you love food? I love food. Dang, do I love food. Like, the only person I've ever had an affair with is Little Debbie. I love Little Debbie's. Aside from Little Debbie's, probably the thing that really gets me is the savory stuff, right? Like the ribs and the, you know, the, the meats. Like I could sit down and pound down a 20-ounce steak and like that, you know. I mean, I love food. Love the mac and cheese, the, the beans, all those kinds of things that, that goes with it. So there's a problem with that because you eat too much of that, it starts affecting your health, Right? And uh, I was eating too much of that. And on August, uh, April 3rd, I had a little bit of a, uh, uh, of a crisis moment. Crisis sometimes are relative. For me, this was a really big deal. I had an annual visit that I had to do for my doctor, and it was a physical. And I knew I had high blood pressure. I mean, that was something that was kind of on my radar already. And so uh, he wouldn't return or wouldn't renew my uh, prescription unless I went in for my annual. So I, you know, I 
acquiesced to his desires and decided to go in. Um, and he, uh, he took my blood pressure, sure enough, it was high. Um, another thing, he asked me some questions, you know, how you doing, how you feeling, not sleeping well, all these different types of things. He took some blood and did a, did a blood screen on me. Well, about four hours later, he called me back. I was at work. A uh, nurse called me back and said, hey, Chuck, I just want to let you know that everything looked good on your blood. Uh, you know, you're, I asked her about my cholesterol. All my cholesterol levels were, were within, you know, where they were supposed to be and all this kind of stuff. And, and then she said, but there is a problem. Um, your glucose levels were a little high. And they were elevated. So we need you to come back in and uh, get checked out uh, with your hemoglobins because we, we think you may be diabetic. This scared me. Honestly, it, it, it scared me. Um, I have family members who are in complete kidney failure because they did not take care of themselves because of their diabetes. Um, my biological dad died about 20 years ago uh, in a veterans hospital with both legs cut off below the knee because he didn't take care of himself for, for diabetes. So this was a big deal for me, right? And so I, uh, uh, what, I, uh, what I did is I thought, okay, I got to get, get a plan. I mean, I cannot... I don't want to get it on paper that I'm diabetic, and so i got to get a plan together. And, and so I met with my, my friend over here, Dale. Uh, that, that night, actually, we had a, a birthday party and uh, uh, met with a, a friend of mine, Steve. I was telling him about the situation, and, and then the next day I met with Dale, and uh, I was explaining to Dale how kind of i I got a problem here. I need a plan, and uh, Dale helped me out. And I was talking to other individuals about it, talking to Peg Christensen and, you know, uh, uh, talked to Chad Williams, talked to just a lot of different people about this. And I want to I tell you that it's through those people that God revealed four very specific sins in my life. He revealed the sin of laziness. Dale was like, it's going to take some work. This couch to 5K program that I'm recommending for you, it, it's not going to be easy. You know, you might finish it. You're not going to have a great time, but it's, you know, this, it'll get you moving. So Dale, he didn't tell me I was lazy. He didn't say, Chuck, you're being a lazy guy. He just said, you're going to have to work. Um, he revealed through Steve my sin of selfishness. Uh, he, Steve was communicating a story about some of his family members and how one of them was just kind of wasting away, wasn't taking care of himself and how much of a burden it was on on another individual in the family. And so he's like, I see that as super selfish. And so I felt, man, I'm, I'm being selfish, not taking care of myself. Um, what kind of burden is that putting on my wife? What kind of burden is that going to put on my kids? So he revealed laziness, selfishness. He revealed gluttony. Like, I like food. But I shouldn't find my satisfaction in my food, right? I mean, I still get hungry, you know? But he revealed to me the sin of gluttony, and then he revealed to me the sin of pride. Like, my wife would fix a whole thing of potatoes. My son would take some. He's a growing boy. He's 19 years old. I was eating more than my 19-year-old growing boy. And when my wife, hey, you probably may ought to slow down. That's a lot of food. You know what I'd do? I'd get mad. I'd get upset at her. And so my buddy Dale sent me another verse. It's like, the verse said, Chuck, 
If you're a wise person, you're going to listen to others. If you're, not, if you're a fool, you're not going to listen to others. That's basically the, the crux of Proverbs 15, verses 31 and 32. So he re- revealed to me my pride. So he revealed specific sins that were in my life. He showed me, number two, another thing he did through this, through this journey is he showed me that there are others who love me. Like these people told me these things by loving me. They, 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 were, they loved me enough to point me to Scripture. They loved me enough to keep me accountable. They loved me enough to help me repent. Randy Gallup is my guy I go walking, jogging with every uh, Monday and Thursday and Saturday. So he showed me that there are others who love me, and he showed me more than ever that he is the one who satisfies. See, I needed rescued, right? I could have... I could have just dwelt in those sins and guilty because of those sins, but he showed me that he is the one who satisfies me. And at the end of the day, just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean that I won't endure suffering, that I won't encounter hardships, or that I won't experience brokenness. I mean, I still might end up being diabetic, right? Um, I I could get cancer or some other type of life-threatening disease. But you know what it does mean? It means that in the midst of those things, God is trying to teach me that he is enough and that he is better than I ever imagined. So how do I know that Jesus is satisfying me? He's teaching me to love one another. He's teaching us to love one one another. How do I know that Jesus is satisfying me? Because he's becoming my satisfaction and allowing me to overcome sin, to have victory over sin.